Welcome to the Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I'm your host, Drew Nash. This is our first full episode, and I am very excited about this new project. I've been practicing primary care pediatrics in the San Francisco Bay Area for over 25 years, and over that time, I have seen a lot of changes in recommendations, strategies, and treatments for infants, children, and adolescents. I am hoping that this podcast format will provide information for parents and caretakers on a variety of topics of interest in regards to children's health, as well as issues relevant to parents trying to juggle child rearing, work, and personal health. I have a lot of different guests lined up for the show that range from pediatricians to pediatric subspecialists to people who specialize in childhood behavior and parenting coaches. I think the topics that we will discuss will be both relevant and entertaining. First, a couple of nuts and bolt topics. If you're listening to this podcast, then you've already found us. But just so you know, the Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, and I hope that you do, please subscribe so that you can get notified and download each episode as it becomes available. Check out our Facebook page and like us. We can be found at the Owner's Manual Podcast. I hope you'll go there and leave a comment and a question for the show. While we hope that the listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the Owner's Manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There's no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Since this is the first episode of the Owner's Manual, I really wanted to have someone special on the show to help me kick it off. My guest has been practicing pediatrics in the San Francisco East Bay for over 40 years. He did his undergraduate education at UCLA and then moved across town to USC to complete his medical school and pediatric training. He practiced pediatrics in the Navy for two years before moving to the San Francisco East Bay where he was one of the early members of the Alamo Medical Group. He is a source of inspiration, and information both to the many colleagues that have been lucky enough to practice with him, as well as the many thousands of patients who have trusted him over the years. I consider him both a mentor and my West Coast dad. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Bob Cadis. Well, thank you very much, Drew. It's really a pleasure to do this, and it's really a pleasure to be your first guest. As you said, I've been practicing pediatrics for over 40 years, getting close to 50, um, and I'm looking forward to this. Me too. So I think um, we can just jump right in, and I thought when we're going to have our first real episode, we had to start with a topic that um, was going to be a real zinger, and I could think of no better zinger than infant sleep, because really when you get down to it, that is, I always say, that's the currency on which parenthood is based. That if your kid's not sleeping, you're poor. And if your kid is sleeping, you're rich. So with all your years of experience, let's start talking about infant sleep. So 
when we talk about sleep in general, I think the first thing to start about is um, what parents should expect when they bring their newborn home and how much do babies sleep versus not? Well, babies sleep about 18 to 20 hours a day, if you really look at it. 16 to 18 is probably normal. And what the perfect baby does is nurses, goes to sleep, and nurses and goes to sleep, and nurses and goes to sleep. And that's usually a cycle where nursing will take somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes, maybe up to an hour. And then the baby will sleep for a couple hours, two, two and a half, three hours. I usually will tell parents that if babies are not awake during the day after about three hours to wake them up. Um, And what's the point of waking them up when they're sleeping? Because I've heard the adage, never wake a sleeping baby. uh, And and I would say the adage that I use is never never wake a sleeping baby when it's dark outside. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So then there's the day and night difference. So you described kind of the the eat, sleep, wake cycle, um, but there's got to be some degree of difference days versus night initially and then later on. You know, it varies. I mean, the, there's no one fits all with babies. Uh, I, I think people find that. Uh, I usually divide it into thirds. I find that a third of babies come out and do exactly what the book says they're going to do. Mm-hmm. I find a third of babies do kind of a mixture of what the book said we were supposed to do and, and something totally different. And then I find there's a third of babies who've never read the book. Yeah. Would so you agree with I that? I think the illiterate babies are the ones that are the problems because they're not following the rules. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that what you establish in the early time really affects things later, too, because sleep issues are not just issues for infants, but they're issues for children as they get older. Um, so in regards to that, what things can a parent do to help establish a good routine, to help better their sleep for their baby and themselves right away and then kind of as you're saying that kind of translates to long-term benefits too i think in the beginning the baby's the boss Uh, i think it's really hard to to change a baby's pattern so i think the first thing you have to do is figure out what your baby's pattern is and then learn how to accommodate to it i also think you have to have realistic expectations So what I usually tell parents is that a newborn baby, you can expect that they will probably sleep through the night around four months. Um, Some take a little longer. Some do it sooner. And can I interrupt for a second? Um, Because I think there's a discrepancy between what people might describe as being through the night. Okay. So what do you mean by through the night? I usually would say that if a baby takes their last feed around 8, 9, 10 o'clock, and they don't get up till five, six, seven o'clock. They're sleeping through the night. I would agree with that. Yeah, that's that's a good night's sleep. Yeah, and some baby. babies, some babies, you know, will sleep twelve hours. So mm-hmm. you can let them go a little longer if they want to. But if they, if they um, follow the general guideline of what they're supposed to do, um, I think that's a realistic expectation. It's kind of not a not realistic to expect you're going to feed a baby at 7 and they're not going to get up till 7 the next morning. Although that does sometimes happen in babies who are four months of age. 
And what's the difference between that baby and the baby that doesn't do that? Do you think that there's anything that the parent is doing to instill that? Or do you think that's just just genetics and or some babies are better sleepers than others? Well, I think it's I think part of it is the nature of the baby, but I think there's also the nature of the parent. Um, if the parents uh, either experienced or relaxed, uh, I think they're much more likely to have that happen rather than if they're nervous and upset and worried. And um, I think that parents just come in all different varieties, and I think all these things affect how the baby does. The other thing that I think affects things is where's the baby sleeping? Mm-hmm. Um You know, it was interesting, and I think you experienced it too. A few years ago, the Academy of Pediatrics recommended that babies stay in their parents' room for a year. Yes, they did. And we were all aghast. Yes, we were. Um, Because that seemed a little bit extreme, but that was all about, well, maybe it would decrease SIDS. So it's a whole other subject. Well, it seemed extreme, and I felt it was contrary to what I had been trying to teach for the past 20-something years. So so what's your particular opinion about that? Not that I'm asking you to undermine academy recommendations, but what do you tell people? Well, what I usually tell people is that they sh- should keep the baby in their room till as a, until they're comfortable not doing that. Mm-hmm. And I usually say that in my, my feeling is that around three to four months, some maybe six months that if you feel comfortable, if you've got a room for the baby, if you've got a monitor, if you, you know, that the baby does better in their own room and the chance of them sleeping longer is greater if they're in their own room. Cause when they're in your room, you hear everything that they do and they hear everything that you do. And I think all these things do tend to affect the baby sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if you wake any baby up after they've been sleeping for three, and one of the things I hear from parents is, well, the baby's hungry. I feed the baby and the baby really seems to be hungry. And, you know, if you wake any baby, whether they're four, six, eight months in the middle of the night and feed them, they're going to eat. But they're, the question is, do they really need to mm-hmm. eat? And usually by the time they're four to six months, they're getting enough in the waking hours that they can get through. So how do you tell? How do you tell the baby that wakes up and needs to eat from the baby that wakes up and cries but doesn't need to eat? I think if your baby's gaining weight at a normal rate, and I think your baby is developing at a, you know normally, I think that when they wake at night, they probably don't need to eat. Okay. And what are the pitfalls, would you say, that parents frequently get into with their newborn when they want their baby to sleep but find out that they're not? Are there mistakes people make that they could avoid? Uh, I think they they can't let their baby cry. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency when a baby wakes at night, I, I think for all of us, baby wakes at night to go pick the baby up and comfort the baby. And in many instances, that's the worst thing you can do if, uh-huh. if your goal is to get the baby sleep through the night. So the the thing that I tell parents, and it's uh, you know it's it's the old was called the Ferber method from yep. many years ago, and it fell out of favor. But I think it's back in favor, truthfully. I think it is too. And that's basically you know once your baby, if you know your baby's growing well and developing well, and your baby's four to six months of age, and you want to get your baby sleeping longer at night, 
When your baby wakes up, you go in, you don't pick them up, you don't change them, you just pat them for a minute, reassure them, and leave the room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was after 10 minutes, you go back the first time, you do it every 10 minutes, and then you do it every 20, and then you do it every 30. People talk about putting a mattress next to the baby and lying down on the floor or getting a chair and sitting by the door. But anything you do to reward a baby when it wakes up at night starts the cycle of wanting to be rewarded, be it mm-hmm. pick the baby up, put the baby in your bed, you know, breastfeed the baby. That's another thing a lot of parents will do is they'll bring the baby into bed with them and the mom will breastfeed the baby and the baby will fall asleep. But, of course, that's got, that's got its own negative its own problems associated with it, you know, rolling over on top of the baby or yep. ending up with a baby who sleeps in your bed all the time. Yep. Now, that being said, there are many cultures where that is tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think many, many European nations, particularly the Italians, you know, the baby, they talk about the family bed and everybody's in the bed. And, you know, if that's okay with you, then I think that's okay. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with a baby getting up at night they're you know they'll still be healthy it's the effect it has on the mom and the dad right i try to when i'm talking to parents about baby sleep find out what they want because i think trying to tell them and especially if there's a book out there that tells them to do something a way that's just not consistent with their personality or their parenting style all that does is create anxiety and stress um but I agree. So if the baby does best in the family bed, then that's what's best for them. But if they're wanting the baby out so they can take back the bed, then that's where the problem kind of comes out. The, the other thing that I would mention is I find that many times babies will be really good sleepers and sleep through the night at four to six months. And then when they get to be nine months to a year, when they're going through separation anxiety yep. and when they're going through wanting to be with mama, they start waking up again and you've got a whole new adventure and you have to do the same thing sometimes. So there's there's this nine-month, I call it the nine-month uh, sleep disturbance, but developmentally babies change around then and they start waking up more and or coming up with new sleep issues. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it all ties into the fact that they develop stranger anxiety, that uh, they want to be with mama mm-hmm. more, and some babies will start waking at that time. And that's, that's something that you really got to nip in the bud, because if you don't, then it becomes a chronic problem. And the chronic problem being that your kid ends up coming into your room at night, because don't forget the other thing that happens around 9 to 11 months <laughs> They get a little mobility. Now, they can't quite get out of their crib, but fast forward till they're 18 months or two years, they can then get out of their crib. Yeah. So nine-month-olds who are, they realize for the first time they have this object permanence thing where they realize that even though the parent isn't in the room, that they still exist down the hall, and they learn pretty quickly that if they cry loud enough and long enough, that mommy or daddy will come. So that kind of reinforces it, like you were saying earlier, that anything that reinforces waking up will reinforce waking up. So, Absolutely. So how do you deal with that nine-month-old that is starting to push that button? Same way. Same way. 
You know, I think that uh, anything you do, pick pick the child up, uh, comfort the child. Yeah, I mean, you can comfort the child, but don't pick them up. You go in, you pat them, you lay them back down, you tell them to go to sleep. And after about a minute or two, you leave the room and do the same thing. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes as, as time goes on. And you know, it's such a big problem. There are actually people who are sleep trainers. There uh, are. There's a whole cottage industry. Yes, there is. Because this is such a problem. And you know, in, 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 in our community, and I think in many communities, both parents work and their day starts rather early. They've got to get up, get the kids ready to go either to daycare or to school, and then both have to go off to their job. And if you don't have a, if you don't get your sleep, it's wearing. It's really, really. It gets wearing. old fast. It does. Yes, it does. Other sleep issues that come into play with as a child gets older. Well, you take the uh, two-year-old who starts getting up at night and, and wants to come into your bed, or the two and a half year old who wants to come into your bed mm-hmm. at night. How do you how do you deal with that one? And basically, you know, it's it's different now because that child's mobile, uh, can get out of bed and what they do is they just come in and hop into your hop into your room or wake you up. And if you really want to be effective, what you have to do is say, God, it's nice to see you, but this is nighttime and when it's dark you don't get to come in here and you have to go back into your own room. And you pick the child up and you put them back in their own room and you you know say you want them to stay in their bed. If the child keeps coming back and they will some of them, then I think when it really nothing else works, what you got to do is close your door. And what you'll find is sometimes these kids will end up sleeping in front of the door. And right outside that's your okay. Room. Yep. And that's okay. Again, I think in all these things, it's a matter of doing things that don't feel good, but mm-hmm. it's a means to an end. And if you're if you're looking for the end to be positive, then you got you got to put you got to stand firm. Well, I think the positive is is twofold. One, it's obviously positive for the parent who's exhausted, mm-hmm. but we also have to remember that kids need sleep. And if they're not getting quality sleep, that they're not going to be functioning at their best and growing and developing. And so it's not just for the parents' well-being to get their own sleep, but it's it's an investment in the child's health as well. And I think what you touched upon is um, an important point that's kind of a parenting touch point in that a lot of what we do as, as parents is um, it's the unpleasant parts that are the challenging parts. It's the limit setting. It's the things that when you say how it's going to be, the child cries and gets upset. And if early on when you're trying to get your child to sleep, I think it's just an experiment or a, a test of how it's really, this is going to be a long road with your child. And there's going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of times when um, they're not necessarily going to like what you have to say, but you're the parent and you have to let them know uh, this is how it's going to be. And, and you have to follow through. Right. I mean, you have to yep. be consistent. I mean, that's the other thing. You have to be consistent. You can't one night do it one way and one night do it the other way. That's the other hard part of this. This is not easy. Um, I like no sleep. It's not easy at all. You know, it's like it's it's like you say they they don't come with a manual. 
Um, and no, but that's why we're creating the owner's manual. That's right. Yeah. I, I was going to reference that. Yes. That's why you're creating an owner's manual. Um, because there is no manual. Because every child's different. And, you know, the other thing is, is I mentioned techniques, but, you know, it doesn't always work. So if one thing doesn't work, you may have to get creative and come up with something mm-hmm. else, you know. Uh, some kids respond to different things. Um, yeah, I try in giving parenting advice. I try to not use the term always or never mm-hmm. with anything. I could say usually or most of the time because you're going to find the outliers. You're going to find the kid that even though you are doing everything by the book and following the operating instructions as best as you can, that they're still kind of pushing the limits. There's going to be those child. That that kid, and uh, then coming back for a second round of advice, I think is what we usually recommend. And sometimes we come up with a good solution, and sometimes we just uh, help the parents muddle through until it gets better. Yep. If one thing, try, try, try again. <laughs> yep. So if one thing doesn't work, you try something else. For sure. Just to shift gears again, talking about uh, older kids sleep. Um, we have a lot of, it's back to school time here. And so a lot of teenagers or pre-teenagers have been not necessarily on the most regimented of sleep schedules and now school's starting. Any recommendations for either reestablishing uh, healthy sleep habits or just maintaining them throughout the school year? So if you look at recommendations, uh, adolescents should have 10 hours sleep. I think most adolescents don't get 10 hours sleep because their schedule does not allow it, especially if they're in high school and playing a sport and then they have to do homework and all that. But I do think a couple of things that are really important. One, you should try and have a fixed time that you're going to go to bed. Second of all, you should try and get rid of media a yeah. half hour to an hour before you mm-hmm. go to sleep. In other words, turn the TV off, no video games, and get that, off the computer. There's that phone thing. And the phone, and all of it. That's the thing that I find to be the hardest when I'm talking about that in a checkup is I'll say that and the parents will kind of get a I told you so look and the parent <laughs> and the kid will roll their eyes and definitely don't like hearing that from the doctor. But tell me a little more about why that's important. Well, it, it, you know, all that stuff stimulates your brain. And when you go to sleep, you want your brain to get quiet. You should probably, we should probably all take about a half hour of meditation before we go to sleep. And that would really help. But I think as a general rule, turning it off or recommending it is what we should do. Now, are kids going to do that? Are they going to sneak their phone into the bed? You know, um, but, you know. It's like it's like listening to music. What do you think about listening to music before you go to sleep at night? Well, if you're listening to a soft melody, it's probably good. But if you're listening to hard rock, it may not be the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on that and the individual, too. But I think that, that screen time, also the wavelength of light, has been shown to suppress your own internal melatonin levels. So... The recommendation of not having screen time for an hour before sleep, based on that kind of chemistry of the brain being less able to go into sleep if you've been doing that. Um, but I, at the same time, a lot of the, the reality is, is kids finish their homework, they're back from sports, 
and the hour before sleep oftentimes is the time when they've kind of reached the finish line, so to speak, of the day. And they want to just do the thing that they want to do before they go to bed. And that usually involves texting friends, watching a YouTube video, or some social networking. So it's a hard recommendation to keep because you're going to get pushback from the kids all the time. Yeah, I, I think I think if you do something as simple as a 30-minute rule, mm-hmm. you know, and I think even with uh, younger children, you know, if you want your kid to go to bed, and we're talking about a younger child here, like at 8.30, 9 o'clock, about a half hour before, begin the process. Mm-hmm. Begin the process of brushing the teeth and getting the pajamas and reading the story and whatever else you're going to do as a bedtime ritual that you do you begin it before you really want them to go to sleep. The other question that comes up is, okay, so my kid gets in bed and then they have trouble falling asleep, you know, and what I usually say is, you know, so what they do is they just kind of talk to themselves or, you know, some kids want to read and I, I, I think that's plus minus. Uh, it's, I think it's less stimulation than video. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as long as as long as when they are supposed to be in bed, they're in bed. I don't think you can enforce anything beyond that, other than no electronics. You, well, you can't make them fall asleep. That's right. Yeah. As much as we'd like to have that on-off switch, mm-hmm. does not exist yet. No, no. And that's where, if you have a child who's having difficulty, where something like melatonin mm-hmm. might help. Mm-hmm. Other things that you think come in helpful, come in handy for. Uh kid who just can't fall asleep, whether it's because they're worried about something or their just brain is spinning? You know, uh, I think in, in, in the older kid who's having trouble sometimes lying in the bed with them and talking to him or sitting by the bed and talking to him and, you know, might be a good time to communicate, mm-hmm. things like that. Sometimes during those periods of time when all the stimulation of the world However, you'll you'll find out the darndest things from your kids that they never would have told you about after school or uh, at other times when there's distractions. Yep. Yep. For sure. And then are some kids just better sleepers than others? Absolutely. Just like adults. Yep. Some of us sleep better than other people. And, uh, you know, sleep is a whole... The whole issue of sleep in, in, in adults is a whole new, a whole different... Yeah, it is. Well, to touch on that, I think a, a big issue that's kind of become more, has gotten more awareness with adult sleep is sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, things like that, even things like restless legs. Um, we do see those in those issues in pediatrics, but when when might a parent worry that there might be something going on that they should get looked at either by their primary care doctor or see a specialist? Well, certainly with uh, sleep apnea, you know, the, the hallmark is snoring. And many kids do snore, uh, partially or, or a lot because the, the adenoids are big and the tonsils may be big and that can affect things. The, the key really is, is whether they stop breathing. If a kid has a rhythmic snoring and they seem to sleep okay, they're probably okay. However, if they're, if they're restless when they're sleeping and they're snoring and if there's an irregularity to the pattern, those kids need to be looked at Gasping for sleep Gasping and choking and thrashing about. The problem is, you know, if it's from big adenoids and tonsils, you can always do surgery to take them out. But 
kids don't do well on CPAP machines. <laughs> Actually, putting one on an adult is difficult, it's cha- too. No, it's, it's definitely challenging. It's yeah. just uh, trying to put that on a seven-year-old. Is, it's, it's hard. Correct. Yeah. Correct. As far as transitioning, um, we talked a little bit about when is a good time to put a baby have a baby transition from the parent's room into their own room. And you kind of said that was more really when the parent is comfortable with that. When's a good time for a toddler to transition from sleeping in the crib to sleeping in either a toddler bed or a twin bed? Uh, I think, you know, once a child can get out, um, you have two choices. One is to just leave the side down and let make it easier for them. And you can put something soft on the floor but they're usually pretty adept once they can get out, and if you put that side down. So then, in essence, you've got the same situation as if you had a toddler bed. Um, if you do it too soon, you know, then you do encourage them to come into your room. So I usually leave them in their bed till, you know, in their crib till either another child's coming and you need the crib. Which is usually the deciding factor. Correct. Um, Or, you know, if it just becomes you want to redecorate the room and get them a toddler bed. But you have to understand that is a license to run around. It is. I usually recommend uh, parents put a gate on the child's door. And what I usually say is you're turning the room into a crib, so to speak. So they can get in and out of their bed. um, And they probably can vault over the the gate if they wanted to but at least as parents unless you live on a ginormous house uh, you're going to know they've gotten out and you'll be able to make sure that you know they're safe but basically making the room child safe so if in the middle of the night they decide to wander the room and fiddle with things they're not going to be in a situation where they have anything around there that they can hurt themselves with I think that's a great idea Drew yeah how about uh, blankets or binkies or loveys in the crib or in the bed with an infant or a toddler. How do you feel about those uh, sleep uh, accessories? Well, bumpers are out. Um, and, uh, and bumpers are out because why? Well, because the, the fear that they're going to strangulate themselves mm-hmm. on, on, on the bumper now. I've never had that actually happen, but well, it does. So, uh, little personal story is when my firstborn, who's now 25, was about four months old, I came into the room to check on him, and he was fairly wrapped up in his bumper. And that was the last moment that he had a bumper on his crib, and um, haven't none of my kids had one ever since. And I, I agree with you that I think that they're a potential a suffocation or strangulation risk. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't think they sell them anymore, actually. They do. They're different. They're more like mesh. Okay. Okay. But um, I don't think they serve a real useful purpose, honestly. You know, and, and you mentioned pacifier. Pacifiers are a whole, you know, we, we can do a whole podcast on pacifiers. <laughs> but I would say that... Um, you know, every child's different, and what I usually do is I usually, I don't necessarily discourage a pacifier in bed. If you get into the point where you're constantly running in and putting it back in their mouth so that they'll sleep, you you got to take a look at that. Um, I usually, once if kids, if kids stay attached to a pacifier, what I usually tell parents is when they start walking, confine it to bed. Mm-hmm. And if they want the pacifier that bad, tell them, great, you can go in your crib and have your pacifier. 
And I think for most kids, you know, when they get to be closer to 18 months, two years, you can wean them if they haven't naturally given it up on their own. Yeah, I think most kids start to need it less and will give yes. it up. And then there's the, again, there's always the more stubborn there's ones. There's the hanger-oners <laughs> that we are. all deal with. Yep. And then uh, concerns about stuffed animals or loveys? Uh, I, you know, I mean, I know I should be concerned about it. Um, I probably am more liberal about it, having not had any personal experiences where it's a problem. I think it's a, a common sense thing, too. I mean, if you have some giant, like, Paddington bear that's four feet tall in the crib, mm-hmm. that's different than having a little eight-inch fluffy thing. I, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. And if, if a parent sees that something in the crib is potentially um, going to cause a problem... If you see that potential, then obviously take it out. Right. But most kids don't need blankets, really. No. So yeah. what age do you start using those? Probably, you know, I mean, I think, I think you know, depending on weather and heat and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, if, if it's cold, you can put a kid in a sleeper and probably more the two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Kind of when they're getting into that toddler bed age. and when they're getting into that toddler bed age. So any, uh, kind of to wrap up now, any words for the parents of a newborn? They've just brought the baby home. They're a few days into it, so this is fresh. And they're already feeling, obviously, the effects of sleep deprivation, which is definitely going to get worse before it gets better. Any words of advice as far as um, how to get through the next few months till things get better for, I guess, maybe for more the parent's sleep than the child's sleep. Well, I think the reality is is you're probably not going to get get the, the sleep that you're usually accustomed to. I think for women, as they get on in pregnancy, they start preparing for that anyway because sleep does become more difficult in your eighth and ninth month. Um, I think the thing that... You have to understand is that uh, babies are not, you have to be realistic, realist, what I mentioned in the beginning, realistic expectations, and you're going to have a rocky, you know, hard two, three, four months, depending on your baby. Some babies will be easier than others, but I think that if you realize that when you get to three, four months, if it's, it's a good chance that your baby will be sleeping longer at night, and you'll be able to get better sleep. Uh, I think it also helps to have a helpful husband, um, you know, partner who uh, will get up and bring the baby to you and put the baby back for you so that you're not doing it all by yourself. This has to be a a, a couples working together, and I think that makes it better, too. I would agree. Team approach takes a village. Well, Bob, it has been a pleasure to have you here. I'm so honored that uh, you were willing to join me for episode one and talk about this. And I really appreciate all of your input and experience uh, that you've given. And I'm hoping that uh, parents can really use this as a source of uh, guidance to help better both their child's and their own sleep. Well, I feel real honored that you picked me to do your first podcast, and I hope this turns out to be a, uh, uh, a real adventure for you and a successful adventure. And uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to do this. Well, thank you. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, 
And after the break, we'll come back and answer a few phone-in questions that we have that are relevant to infant sleep issues. take a couple of questions from the phone-in line. For listeners, there's a telephone number set aside for you to call in with questions to be answered on the show. That number is 925-732-6274. Or if you'd rather, you can post your question to our Facebook page, which you can find at The Owner's Manual Podcast. Whichever way you'd prefer, we'd love to hear from you. Here's our first question. Hi, Dr. Nash. This is Emma calling from Danville. I have a question about my baby's sleep. She's four months old and falls right to sleep at bedtime uh, when I nurse her at around 8 p.m. or so. The problem is that she sleeps until about midnight and then is up to nurse every hour and a half for the rest of the night. I, I thought babies were supposed to sleep through the night by four months. Please help. I'm exhausted. Thanks for calling, Emma. That is a great question and also a really common problem that we hear about with younger infants in sleep. But the good news is, is from what you're describing, I think I can make some recommendations that are going to make a big difference as far as helping you and your baby getting a better night's sleep. So a couple things to keep in mind. Let's talk about how people, babies, children, and adults sleep. So normally, We sleep about a four-hour stretch initially in that deep, deep sleep. That's the kind of sleep that if you go to sleep at 10 o'clock and the phone rings at 11, that you are disoriented and confused. Whereas if the phone rang at, say, 4 in the morning, you might be able to answer it and have a coherent conversation. So the deep, deep sleep happens for four hours at the beginning. And then after that, both children and adults are in and out of lighter sleep in about a 90-minute cycle. So that translates to adults who go to bed at, at say, 10 o'clock. Then they might wake up at 2 and look at the alarm clock and roll over and go back to sleep. And they might do the same thing at 3.30 and then 5 and then be up for the morning at 6.30. So babies do the same thing. They sleep a 4-hour stretch, which is your 8 to 12 period where your baby is sleeping well. And then they're in and out of light sleep. Now let's talk about sleep associations. Both children and adults have sleep associations. So there's things we do before we go to sleep. We wash our face, we brush our teeth, we're telling our body it's time to go to sleep soon. And there's things we do when we go to sleep. We lay in a bed, we have a pillow under our head and a blanket over our body. And those are the conditions that we're used to falling asleep under. So we need those same conditions when we wake up periodically throughout the night. So if you go to sleep with a pillow under your head and you wake up from one of your normal wakings in the middle of the night and your pillows fall on the floor, well, you're going to have to put it back under your head to fall back asleep. But for some reason, if you develop some neck or spine problem and your doctor said you need to learn to sleep without a pillow, it might take you a few days, but you could do it and then you'd be fine. So Emma, what you're describing with your baby is that she can fall asleep only when she's nursing or being fed or held. 
so you've put her to sleep that way. But then every time she wakes up throughout the night, which is normal, she needs that again to fall back asleep. So the key is bedtime. If you can train her and teach her to fall asleep without being fed and without being held, then when she wakes up throughout the night, she'll be able to put herself back to sleep just like you can. So here's the key. What you do now is you're nursing her till she falls asleep. What you need to work towards over the course of, say, a week or so is letting her be more and more drowsy but still awake and put her into her crib that way. So when you're nursing her and she gets that kind of la-la land look in her eyes, take her off the breast, give her a burp, give her a hug, put her in her crib, drowsy but still awake. Now, when you're changing the rules suddenly, there may be a little bit of crying involved. And like Dr. Cadis and I were discussing earlier in the show, you may have to go in there every five minutes, every seven minutes, every 10 minutes, try not to pick her up, give her a pat, and leave. And over the course of just a few days, I think you'll find that those periods of crying at bedtime get shorter and shorter, and that the wakings in the middle of the night get fewer and further between. If you can get her to fall asleep at bedtime without being held or fed, then you're going to see her wake up either once a night to nurse or not at all. I hope that helps. And now for our next question, which involves what we can do as parents to reduce our baby's risk of SIDS. Hi, this is Cheryl calling from San Ramon. I have a question for Dr. Nash. I have a beautiful one-month-old baby boy, and I'm very worried about SIDS. I know about having the baby sleep in my room and having the baby sleep on his back to reduce a SIDS risk. Are there any other recommendations that you have to help me reduce the risk of SIDS in my child so that I don't have to worry so much? Thanks. Thanks for calling, Cheryl. That is another great question. So SIDS is something that is every parent's worst nightmare, and it is completely normal for the parent of a newborn baby to be worried about it and to spend a lot of time thinking about it. What you have to understand is it is incredibly rare. So as a pediatrician, it's the kind of thing that we might only see once in our entire career. Now, there are things you can do to decrease your baby's risk. You had mentioned having the baby sleep on their back, which is a significant factor that you can actually control. And you also mentioned having the baby sleep in the same room as you, which is something that the Academy of Pediatrics came out with as a recommendation a few years ago. I don't quite always agree with that because I think it's important for both the baby and the parent to learn to sleep in separate rooms around three to four months of age. Now, the reason that sleeping in the same room as the parent decreases a baby's SIDS risk is because anything in the baby's environment that causes stimulation to their nervous system will decrease their risk. So sleeping in the same room as a parent, where the parent might be making noise when they're breathing or rolling over periodically or getting up to go to the bathroom, those are all things that stimulate the baby. But there are other things we know about and that have been studied that can decrease the SIDS rate in the same way. We know that having a ceiling fan going in the bedroom will decrease a baby's SIDS rate. We know that having an oscillating fan will do that. 
We know that babies who sleep with pacifiers have decreased SIDS rates. So anything that causes stimulation to the baby's nervous system can decrease the baby's risk of SIDS. So if you're going to have the baby sleep in a different room when you transition three to four months of age, as I discussed, then turn on a ceiling fan or have a white noise machine going. Any of these things can help offset any concern over raising the baby's risk of SIDS by not having them in the same room as you. Another thing to keep in mind is there are major risk factors that most people have eliminated without even thinking about it. Smoking during pregnancy is a major risk for SIDS. Passive smoke exposure after the baby's born is a risk of SIDS. And those risks are much more significant than sleeping position or sleeping in the same room or having a fan going. So if you smoke, try to quit because that's what's best for you as a parent and it's also what's best for your baby. But if you don't smoke and haven't smoked, know that you've already contributed to decreasing your SIDS rate in a significant way. I really hope that this information helps to reduce your stress about this. This concludes the premiere episode of The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I hope the information in the show today was both helpful and entertaining. I want to thank my special guest, Bob Cadis, for coming in today and talking about infant and children's sleep. I'm your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your children a wonderful night's sleep. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, MD, and one-to-one pediatrics. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. You can find the Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Like us on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast. 